Welcome to The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia, and your guide and fellow traveler on our journey into what it means to be a green investor today and where this investing theme is headed in the future. On this week's show, it's not Build Back Better, but the newly introduced Inflation Reduction Act Bill of 2022 has some surprisingly positive developments for clean energy, climate technology, and green banking. We break down what's in the proposed bill and what the future of green banking may look like if passed with Reed Hunt, the co-founder chair and CEO of the Coalition for Green Capital. But first and always, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in securities mentioned on this podcast. Some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast. But all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. The climate and tax spending deal announced last week by U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Joe Manchin, now known as the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, includes up to $370 billion in spending to help fight climate change. It would also impose tens of billions of dollars in fees on the fossil fuel industry to pay for some of that spending. Let's break it down. The legislation, which may be voted on by the U.S. Senate as soon as this week, would reinstate and increase a long-lapse tax on crude and imported petroleum products to 16.4 cents per barrel. That fee would be paid by U.S. refineries receiving crude oil and importers of petroleum products, according to the Congressional Research Service. The bill also includes a first-time fee on methane emissions and increases in the royalty rate payable on oil and gas produced on federal land. Believe it or not, the proposed legislation actually received some praise from the oil and gas industry. ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods told analysts on the company's earnings call that it was, quote, a step in the right direction, end quote. Well, maybe that's because the bill would allow more lease sales for drilling on federal land, as well as a separate future agreement to streamline environmental permitting for projects such as pipelines. The proposed levy on imports is a revival of the Superfund tax, which was introduced back in 1980 and helped fund the cleanup of hazardous waste sites across the country. It previously mandated a 9.7 cents per barrel tax until it lapsed at the end of 1995. In addition to reinstating and increasing the tax, the Senate proposal would index the fee to inflation. The bill also proposes up to $385 billion in spending towards clean energy efforts. There's $160 billion in clean energy credits, $35 billion for individual clean energy incentives like installing solar panels in your home, $35 billion for clean manufacturing tax credits, $35 billion for clean fuel and tax credits like buying an electric vehicle, and another $120 billion in other climate and energy spending initiatives. Investors took notice of these developments in a big way, bidding up shares of solar companies, wind turbine manufacturers, nuclear and hydrogen fuel cell companies, and electric battery makers. Sunrun, the largest U.S. residential solar installer, saw its stock jump as much as 34% last Thursday, the most on record. TPI Composites, which makes wind turbine blades, climbed as much as 38% in its biggest gain ever. And rooftop solar company, Sonova Energy, surged as much as 41%, its largest intraday rise since March of 2020. Solar companies have faced wave after wave of policy trade and supply headwinds that slowed development and weighed on the sector. But this bill, if approved, finally shined a little light on solar stocks. The proposed bill also buoyed shares of Constellation Energy, which operates nuclear reactors. Fuel cell maker Plug Power jumped as much as 25%, and fuel cell energy gained as much as 20% last week. Wind farm developers also got a big boost from the pack with the revival of a key tax credit. Wind power development has really slowed this year as companies have waited to see if Washington would renew the program. Shares in the world's biggest wind turbine maker, Denmark's Vestas Wind Systems, jumped as much as 20% last week on the news, its biggest gain in nearly a decade. Let's get into some news headlines. 
Extreme weather events linked to climate change caused about $65 billion in total losses in the first half of 2022, roughly half of which hit uninsured assets. That's according to data compiled by the reinsurance company Munich Re. Insured losses reached about $34 billion, which is close to what it was in recent years. Overall damages through June, which were caused by natural disasters such as earthquakes, dropped from $150 billion a year earlier. The six-month data for 2022 doesn't include the full fallout from Europe's heat wave, which has led to intense drought, wildfires, and water shortages throughout the continent. Floods in Australia were the costliest disaster for the finance industry in the first half, causing insured losses of $3.7 billion so far. Parts of Sydney had as much rain in four days as they'd normally see in eight months, causing water levels of some rivers to reach their highest levels in over 100 years. Amazon.com said its carbon footprint grew 18% in 2021, undermining the massive online retail giant's efforts to cut its contribution to emissions warming the planet. Amazon emitted 71.54 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent last year, according to an updated edition of its sustainability report. That's up about 40% since the company first disclosed the figure with data from 2019. Amazon's carbon intensity, that's a measure that divides its emissions by gross merchandise sales, fell 1.9%, a small but important sign that the company which is also the largest provider of web hosting services on the planet through Amazon Web Services, is operating more efficiently. Amazon has said it aims to become a net zero emitter of greenhouse gases by the year 2040. Besides cutting emissions with electric vehicles and other operational initiatives, Amazon had said it plans to buy credits linked to projects that remove carbon from the atmosphere. That's a huge challenge for a company that operates a cargo airline, a sprawling worldwide retail logistics business, grocery stores, and data centers. Amazon's accounting of its carbon footprint includes emissions generated by its own office and data centers, purchase electricity, tailpipe emissions from delivery partners, and the manufacturings of Amazon-based products, among other things. In contrast to some retailers, Amazon doesn't attempt to account for the emissions that go into the manufacturer of products that it sells, with the exception of that private label merchandise. Coal prices are rising again and are set to return to record levels reached almost 10 years ago amid a continuing global energy supply crunch. Curbs on carbon emissions from coal-fired plants are on the back burner as governments scramble to stock up on a traditional energy supply amid bottlenecks caused by the Ukraine war. The price of thermal coal used for power generation has risen about 170% since late last year, rising sharply after Russia's invasion of Ukraine in March. On the other hand, coking coal, which is used for making steel, is trading lower due to reduced manufacturing in China and can concerns of a global recession in other developed markets. In a currently released report from the International Energy Agency, global coal consumption is set to rise by 0.7% in 2022 to match the record set back in 2013. India formally committed to switch half of its electricity generation capacity to use clean fuels by the year 2030 and reinstated a demand for its due share of financial assistance as one of the world's top emitters seeks to go carbon neutral by the year 2070. Prime Minister Modi's cabinet approved plans this week to cut emissions intensity of its GDP to 45% by the year 2030 from 2005 levels. India will submit its updated Nationally Determined Commitments, or NDCs as they're called, to the United Nations, becoming one of the last major emitters to fulfill this obligation under the Paris Climate Agreement. Volvo plans to build a large-scale battery plant in Sweden to meet an unexpected surge for demand in electric trucks and buses. The Swedish manufacturer, which currently sources cells from Samsung, said this week that it started a process to obtain approvals to set up its own production in the municipality of Maristad. It didn't disclose how much the factory would cost. The world's second biggest truck maker plans to gradually increase capacity and reach large-scale vehicle series production by the year 2030. Volvo reiterated its target that at least 35% of its products should be electric by the same year. 
Inside the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 is a provision for the creation of a National Green Bank, a program that would help launch and leverage private funding for clean energy projects. Green banks are banking institutions that use innovative financing to accelerate the transition to clean energy and to fight climate change, and they've been around since 2009, but not on a federal level like a national green bank. This could potentially be a game changer for spurring new entrepreneurial and innovative ideas in climate technology and green energy industries. But just how would it work? Reid Hunt is co-founder, chairman, and CEO of the Coalition for Green Capital, a nonprofit that supports and advocates for green banks to invest in the clean power platform. He's a Washington, D.C. veteran, having served as the chairman of the FCC from 1993 to 1997, and he served on the boards of companies including Intel and the Connecticut Green Bank. And he is our special guest this week on The Green Investor. Welcome, Reid. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit more about the Coalition for Green Capital. I gave the, the broad strokes here, but give us a sense of actually what you do. Okay, we we do is try to create green banks in every state and sometimes more than one in the state in the United States. We've been doing that for more than a decade. The genesis of the idea politically is that in the winter of 2008 and nine, I asked Larry Summers to capitalize a national green bank and he said no. So well, he was next, secretary of the treasury at that time. No, Larry was a, a key economics advisor to the president elect. And of course, ultimately, you know, he played a big role in President Obama's entire economic program. But I was on the transition team and I just asked him, you know, would you make this part of the stimulus program? And he said, no, he said, we have enough trouble with banks. He was thinking of Lehman Brothers. I said, this is a good bank, not a bad bank. But he did say no. However, Congressman Markey and Congressman Van Hollen said yes, and they passed it out of the House. And then Senator Bingaman and Senator Murkowski, on a bipartisan basis, adopted the idea of a national green bank, and they passed it out of the Senate Energy Committee. That's the same committee that Senator Manchin chairs at the present time. However, it was never put on the floor of the Senate for a vote. And so from 2009 to the present, people in Congress, particularly Van Halen and Markey and Debbie Dingell, and previously her now deceased husband, John Dingell, they fought to have this become a measure, part of the overall federal program of expediting the move to the clean power platform. They fought for it for 13 years, and now we're at the doorstep of success. Yeah, let's get to what the IRA, the new Inflation Reduct Act, has in it in a second for green banks. But just for our listeners, what are green banks? They're not like traditionally federally regulated banks, but they are more like investment banks. Give us a sense of basically what they are and how they operate. So a bank makes investments and it takes deposits. Green banks don't take deposits, but they make investments. <laughs> they loan money to a uh, company that's installing solar rooftops, or they loan money to a consumer that wants to buy a heat pump, or they loan money to a developer that is building a microgrid so that if a big storm washes away the electrical system, there's a way to get back online in that community right away. In other words, more than one thing, but all part of building a sustainable, cheap, clean power platform faster than the market is otherwise doing. That's what they do. And I can say that because we've been creating them with the help of foundations for now more than a decade. And we've created these green banks in more than 20 states. What we need to do is scale them out so that there are green banks in every single state. 
and scale them up so that they all have much more money to invest. So the money comes from foundations, the money comes from private investors. Is that the source of the capital? Two kinds of money, Caleb. Thanks for the good clarifying question. There's the money that's gone to the nonprofit coalition for green capital to create the green banks, hire the first people, get things going. And over the course of a decade, that's been about $30, $35 million by all the major philanthropic institutions in the country that have cared about the climate. So huge credit to all of them. I won't name them all, but huge credit to all of them. And then there's the money to invest. That's the problem. Where do you get the money to invest? And so in every way possible, we've tried to get that capital from state governments or frankly, wherever we can. Over the last decade, we've been able collectively, the whole group of green banks uh, has been able to get about two and a half billion dollars of public capital. Always it's combined with private capital to have the aggregate investment be much bigger than the public money. We always want to have this be public-private investment. That is the way to expedite the move to the clean power platform. And so that $2.5 billion has turned into almost $10 billion of total investment over the decade. And all the investment has been profitable. Not horribly profitable, not incredibly lucrative, because we're trying to have the clean power platform be really, really cheap, really affordable. So investors behind these banks expect to get their money back, just like a bank expects to get paid back on a loan. They do. They expect to, and they have. The default rate is less than one third of 1%. So how do retail investors or our listeners participate in green banks? Can they participate? Is this available to, to accredited investors? Yes. Some of the green banks have offered bonds that they can buy. So that when, when, a, when a green bank sells a bond, what it's doing is raising money for investment. And so that's one way they can participate. The second way they could participate is buying the heat pumps. So, you know, our target audience is primarily, and this is all the green banks, it's primarily low to medium income households, about 70% of the American economy. If you have a really, really big house with a lot of roof space, you can afford to put the solar panels on it yourself. And if you have a three-car garage, you can probably afford to get the electric vehicle yourself. But if you're in the low to medium income category, about 70% or more of America, then what you need is for clean power to be delivered faster than carbon power, to be cheaper than carbon power, to be cleaner than carbon power. And in order to have it be affordable, you need investors to give you really good prices. And that's why we want public-private investment, because it will offer these products at much lower prices. So green banks can operate a little bit more efficiently since they don't have that regulatory oversight, at least not yet. We don't have a green central bank yet or an FDIC that oversees green banks. You know regulatory oversight very well. You served as the FCC chair, the Federal Communications Commission chair for many years. I know it very well. I've experienced it and I've done it. (laughs) What's the risk then, Reed, for more government involvement in green banks? Or if there is a federal green bank that sort of oversees a lot of these other green banks, or is that just not the model you're envisioning if this comes to pass? We've always embraced all the different green banks at the state level. And certainly, you know, the concept here, you know, embraces the idea that there will be complete transparency about all the investing, really great ethics. Uh, We will have an unpaid board. 
We are a nonprofit. We will be perfectly willing to be watched carefully by everybody from you, Caleb, to you know anyone else that any government wants to name. This is supposed to be a public activity in the sense of open and transparent, but not a federal government-run activity because it's supposed to match up with the private sector and be as efficient and uh, focused on the bottom line as the private sector is. It's just that when you start with uh, government money, you want to get a return, but you don't want to maximize profits. You want to maximize results. Impact, as we say in the business, and impact when we're talking about green investing, sustainable investing is reducing climate change, right? Working on technologies for clean power and to transition the economy. So let's dig in to the Inflation Reduction Act. One of the features inside of it is the creation of this Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, the GGRF. We love acronyms on this show. They're all over the place in this industry. But this fund could create a mechanism to disperse up to $27 billion to clean energy technology without Reed going undergoing that laborious review that the EPA has to go through if they're reviewing projects. Inside of that, is that where the opportunity is for green banks or for a national green bank? Yeah, that's right. You've got it exactly right. The bill, if it's passed, you know, and prayers are going up, uh, the bill, if it's passed, uh, pours the money into that fund at the EPA, then the EPA pours the money out. And that's the technique. It is designed in the statute to be done as fast as possible. And uh, I hope so, because the green banks that now exist have $21 billion of backlog, unfunded projects. Why? They don't have enough capital. Give us the capital. Let us start building the clean power platform. You watch this industry very carefully. You've been around Washington for a long time as well, but you've also seen what's been going on in the economy and the super cycle for commodities right now, raging high oil prices. They've come down a bit by now, but we've seen this you know, sort of return to oil. We thought we were at peak oil, and that has taken a little bit of the spotlight off of clean tech, a lot of uh, spotlight off of green technologies. The stocks you know, in those sectors had a very tough year given the rise in oil prices. Has any of the appetite for funding for green banks or for the companies they fund or entrepreneurship sort of dried up amid the super cycle for fossil fuels? So rising uh, private sector interest rates and rising costs threaten to slow the move to the clean power platform. No question about it. And since we started this whole concept 13 years ago, we've enjoyed 13 years of very low interest rates and ever declining costs for goods and materials. And if we are at the inflection point and we're going to see a change in both of those positive trends, all the more reason for public-private investing, because the one thing that is absolutely clear to everyone is we have to keep up the speed and accelerate the rate of building the clean power platform. We have to reduce the emissions going into the air, and we have to expand the benefits of the clean power platform to low to medium households, income households. So because those are necessities, We have to put even more wood behind the arrow of public-private investment. The private part seems so key to this because private investors expect a couple of things. Efficiency, returns, and transparency in the businesses that they operate. Not exactly what you get when you're working through the government per se. So I can see why 
that private capital is so important here. And you're out in California right now. There's a lot of private capital looking to put money into green tech, climate tech, and to ways to combat climate change. But if they don't have the right vehicles to do it, they may turn against it. You got it exactly right. I'm convinced, not from slideware, but from experience, that this is a crucial move. This public-private investing capacity is a crucial move, not just in the United States, but really in every other country in the world. Nation-state green banks are the way to, to move much more quickly to the clean power platform. Which countries are doing this better, more efficiently, or have more well-tuned systems for green banks right now? If this bill becomes law, the United States will jump into the forefront of the move to the clean power platform in the global competition to create a different underpinning for all economic and social activity. We did that before I was there. That is in the communications and technology space in the 1990s. We led the move to digital cellular and to the internet, to digitization of all information. And our great companies and our tremendous people had careers and wealth creation and tremendous benefits for the whole economy because we led that move. But we shared all those technologies with the rest of the world. Well, we want to do the exact same thing here. We want to lead the move to the clean power platform, have many, many uh, companies, many, many people become the leaders, share all the benefits of this transition with the rest of the world, and frankly, leave the world a better place for the next generation than we found it. So if the IRA passes, the Inflation Reduction Act passes the House and is signed by the president, is this the game changer a lot of people have been hoping for, especially in the world that you operate in now, in green banking? And if so, how is that going to change the way you operate through, through the alliance? It's actually not going to change the way that we operate because we've been trying so hard to get the capital to scale out and have green banks in every place in the United States and include community development finance institutions and other nonprofit lenders with the fundamental principle being we will be partnering with private investors everywhere for more than one reason. But the most important reason is that's the way we get more bang for the public buck. But the other reasons are private sector investors, you know, bring innovation, private sector investors, you know, have a lot of focus on efficiency in their investment. So this is a happy marriage, this public-private investment concept. It just needs to be celebrated with extra public money. Let's hope, fingers crossed, that this does pass and this money does come through and, and it's a lot more available to form more green banks. And the green banks that are already out there are able to scale up a little bit. What do the next five to 10 years look like then for green banks? How will they evolve if this is working the way you and your, your partners in the coalition envision it? I'd say two things. First of all, we would see that products like heat pumps wouldn't be a little bit weird, kind of hard for consumers to assess, but instead they'd be flying off the shelves at Home Depot. We wouldn't see that uh, it's only really well-off people that have, you know, the latest model of Tesla. We would see instead that people with lower incomes that drive a long way to work would be the ones who would get the tremendous savings from having an electric vehicle. In other words, a much wider base of, for consumers to enjoy the cool and cheaper and cleaner products that are the piece parts of the clean power platform. So that would be the first thing, right? And in that sense, exactly like 
when I was at the FCC and there were a total of zero digital cell phones in the United States. And within 10 years, the penetration rate was more than 60%. And in 15 years, it was 95%. So that's exactly what we want to see for all of the piece parts of the clean power platform. Tremendous consumer take up across uh, the entire geography and across all income levels. And then the second thing that we want to see is that the private sector investors would just clamor to be part of these deals so that the total amount of investment on an annual basis in building the clean power platform would go up by hundreds of billions of dollars per year. We have that financial capability in the United States. We showed that in building the fiber optic highways and the digital cellular networks and the facilities to build uh, cell phones. We did all that in the 90s. We did it all basically from scratch because private sector investors and innovators said, this is going to work. Well, we want the same thing on the investment side to occur in building the clean power platform. So without getting too political, I know you study the law, you're a lawyer, but also you know how Washington works, you know how these bills are created. Was there anything in this bill besides the, you know, the potential provision for green banks, for a national green bank, that surprised you in terms of compromise, given where we were and where we might be if this is indeed signed? Well, like everybody else, I was I was surprised that Build Back Better wasn't dead the way we read in the newspaper. I mean, uh, it certainly is true that Senator Schumer and Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema, you know, were keeping their own counsel. So that part I was surprised by. But the part that's been pretty consistent over the years is the leadership of Van Hollen and Markey and Dingle and others uh, to create a green bank because that bill was passed three times in the House of Representatives. So it may finally come to pass. This may be something that we that could be a reality as soon as this year, potentially, or, or in 2023. If the law is signed by the president, you know, next week, nothing is stopping the government from acting right away. Well, I got to ask you to go out on this. You were, of course, the chair of the FCC. You're a trained lawyer, been involved with several corporate boards. What brought you to the Coalition for Green Capital, to this movement, given where you were in your career. This is something you've been involved with for you know over a decade right now. Why did you turn to this? A friend of mine since ninth grade is Al Gore. And in ninth, this is way back down in the alley, Caleb. So way back in 1991, he asked me if I had any comments about a draft of the book he had written called Earth in the Balance. And uh, then I found myself in 1992 with the first Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, and he got a phone call from the presidential nominee, Bill Clinton. And the next thing you know, the two of them were a ticket. And then they won. And then in January of 1993, I chaired the committee that drafted the first carbon tax in the United States, which was called the British Thermal Unit Tax. And uh, we got it through the House, and we did not get it through the Senate. And ever since that day, You know, just a whole bunch of us that go back that many years have been trying to figure out how are we going to do the things that Al was writing about in that book and then later a movie (laughs) and, you know, then, you know, an an Oscar. And, you know, how are we going to actually make this transition happen before it's too late to stop catastrophic climate change? And so we've just been thinking about it and thinking about it. And in terms of the Green Bank concept, it's been 13 years of advocacy by 
just really, I mean, hundreds of us have been involved in this. Well, it'll be so fascinating to see how this plays out. Reed Hunt, the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of the Coalition for Green Capital. Thanks so much for joining The Green Investor. Good to speak with you. Thank you, Caleb. Great questions. Thank you. It's time to unpack the acronym, that part of the show where we get to deconstruct the alphabet soup that green investors are swimming in. And this week, we're going to keep digging into that Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 and all that money that could be headed towards clean and green energy. This week's acronym, the GGRF, also known as the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. This was introduced as part of President Biden's Build Back Better plan, but that bill never passed. But it did make it back into the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And according to the bill, this program will unlock meaningful climate investments and advance environmental justice by providing $27 billion to help nonprofits, states, and other institutions use federal dollars to leverage private investments and projects that combat climate change. At least 60% of the money, according to the bill, will help provide clean energy financing in low-income and disadvantaged communities, communities that often struggle to find financing for clean energy and energy-efficient projects. Funding is technology-neutral and will help all Americans, especially those in low-income and disadvantaged communities, save money on energy costs. Not too dissimilar from what Reed Hunt was talking about earlier in our conversation. If this bill passes and is signed by the president, expect to hear a lot more about the GGRF, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. It's time for Green Facts, that part of the show where we get to explore fascinating facts, figures, and data points around the world of green investing. And this week, we're headed to the pitch to find out more about the greenest football, or soccer as we say on this side of the pond, club on the planet. Nice assist here from Bloomberg Green for profiling the Forest Green Rovers. They're located in Nailsworth in the west of England. This team was recently taken over by Dale Vince, a British green industrialist who wanted to remake the club in his own image. From reducing the carbon footprint of the stadium to removing meat and dairy from the menu and even transporting players in an electric bus, Vince has sought to really put the green in the team's name. The entire club is powered by 100% green energy from Ecotricity, which they generate themselves, they say, with solar panels on the stadium roof and the solar tracker at the ground entrance. On the Rover's website, the team boasts about its green initiatives, including the Bolt Green Lawn, its so-called green stadium. It's got an organic pitch. The grass they play on is sustainable, free from pesticides and weed killers. They use an electric mobot, cutting the grass with a GPS-directed solar-powered lawnmower. And they use rainwater capture to collect the rainwater that lands on the stadium to use it to irrigate the pitch rather than using Maine's water. They also have charging stations for all their customers driving up to see their games at the new lawn. The team serves only vegan food to its players and its fans, and on match days, the Rovers give out their award-winning Q-Pies, those delicious plant-based burgers they serve there, spicy pasties, vegan fajitas, all of which are made with locally sourced ingredients. It must be working as the Rovers just moved up into the third tier in the British soccer leagues. Go Rovers! I may just have to buy myself an eco-friendly green Rover jersey. We'll go out this week, as we always do, celebrating this week in environmental history. And this week, we're looking all the way back to 1977, because on August 3rd of that year, President Jimmy Carter signed into law the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act of 1977, SMCRA, as it's known. It became the primary federal law that regulates the environmental effects of coal mining in the United States. SMCRA created two programs, one for regulating active coal mines and a second for reclaiming abandoned mine lands. SMCRA also created the Office of Surface Mining, an agency within the Department of the Interior to promulgate regulations, fund state regulatory and reclamation efforts, and to ensure consistency among state regulatory programs. But when President Carter signed the bill into law, he called it, quote, at best, a watered-down version of a law that was originally supposed to regulate surface mining of coal. Environmentalists complained that it still permitted mountaintop removal mining, one of the worst environmental practices in the Appalachian Mountains. 
Today, the Department of Interior, Office of Surface Mining Reclamation Enforcement, and delegated states regulate coal mining activities, and mountaintop mining is still permitted. Thanks for joining us this week. As always, and special thanks to Reed Hunt from the Coalition for Green Capital for coming on the program. Let's keep our eyes on green banks, especially if the Inflation Reduction Act becomes law. We're going to post the transcript to our conversation, as well as links to all the reports we cite in the show notes. You'll find those wherever you listen to this podcast and on Investopedia.com slash The Green Investor Podcast. You'll find links to all our other episodes of The Green Investor right there as well. Until we meet again, keep it green, and we'll talk again real soon.